Well, good morning. My name is Brad McMurray, and I am a pastoral intern here at UPC. And Matt has asked me if I would jump in and preach this morning. I think he's trying to test and see if I really believe the verse that says, be ready in season and out of season. So I hope I'm at least ready to come up here, and how far it goes, we'll see what the Lord will do. Um, The text we'll be using this morning is not from Ephesians. We'll be jumping back into Ephesians in the future, but I would like to ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, and we're going to look at the text where Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. Be preaching from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Listen now to God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you for illumination, that you would enlighten our hearts, that we could see what you have for us here in this passage that is so familiar to us, and yet uh, we need to rehearse it. And I pray that not only would you enlighten our hearts, but would you open our hearts, that we would be hungry to receive what you would say to us, and that you would strengthen our hearts, that we could hold on to what we have learned today, that it might bear fruit for you as we pray and as we serve and as we think about and draw near to you in your loving role as our Heavenly Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Parents, I want to ask you, do your kids ask you for things? (laughs) Or do they ever stop asking you for things? They're always asking you for things. Some, sometimes they'll ask you for things which you are eager to give, or you know, dinner will be in five minutes, so don't worry, I'll take care of you. And other times they might ask you for something that you're waiting to give them for some reason, you know, when we can afford it, or when the time is right, or that's not right now, so you want to give them something, but it's not right now. And other times they might ask you for something that you know is not in their best interest, but they want it. And so you have to teach them, no, that's really not best for you, and, and you want to teach them what to want, how to want the right things. Even if you are still a young person and your parents are still a part of your life, you might even be inclined to ask them 
four things I expect, you know, some more young people in the next service. But young people, you might ask for your parents for a loan to make a down payment to buy a house. You want to go to your parents and ask for something good. And if they're able and if they're willing and they can provide it for you, it's a good thing. Parents like to give good things to their children, and that's part of the relationship. And I want to draw your attention to one small thing before we get into the text, and that is that when you go to someone to ask, there is an implied presumption that the, the one that you're asking can actually do what you're asking them to. So that you, you don't ask people to do things that are beyond what their capacity is, at least reasonably. You don't ask for the moon, essentially, because that's not a possibility. But you do ask for things that you think are within the capacity of the person that you're speaking to. And that's something we need to think about with God. When we go to him, we have to think about what we're saying about our relationship to him and what we're saying about what we believe he's capable of when we go to him to ask or to speak to him in prayer. Likewise, in the Lord's Prayer, we see a relationship defined between God and his children that I want, I want actually to take time looking at each of these elements of the Lord's Prayer so that you can get a, a, a more clear or perhaps a more intense picture of how God views you as his children with using the, the terms of the Lord's Prayer. So that in our, in our praying this, as we pray it every week, and maybe some of you praying it throughout the week, it becomes richer and more meaningful and has more, more packed into it. And to do that, we want to take a little bit of time to look at it. Um, so we've, we're starting with verse 5, and, and really instructive as Jesus is, is giving this, this instruction, he's actually starting by saying, don't pray this way, don't pray this way, don't pray this way. So before he sets us up to teach us, he actually teaches us how not to pray. And these are really important Um, elements for us to take note of in this prayer. First, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The word hypocrite in the text is basically, it doesn't have a negative moral connotation. It just means an actor, someone who wears a mask. And when you go to watch a performance, you see the mask, and you know that's not really what that person is all about. They're just playing a role And Jesus says, don't pray like that. Don't put on a mask. Don't be like those who are really something underneath and putting something on on the outside. Don't don't strive after the mistaken honor of the audience. Because when the audience gives the actor the applause, that's the reward you get for praying with a mask on. So when you come to God, you really need to be your real self. And here's what he says. He says, instead of that, When you pray, don't be on stage, don't be in public. Uh, Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In the first century, um, there were not rooms in houses. It might have been just four walls, and even a door might not have been a a physically wooden door. If there was a a, a room in in a house like that, it would have been maybe just a pantry or a small closet, not enough room even to, to move around. So what he's, what he's not saying, that you have to, have to have a special room, your, your, your war room or whatever in your house. He's just saying, do it in secret. Don't be in the marketplace. Don't be on the street corner. Don't be trying to put yourself out in public. I read a story about a missionary, otherwise I think rather faithful missionary to South Africa, and the story told was the people who were observing him. Every day he would go out to pray, and he would climb up on the roof of his house and kneel down and pray. And I think that was part of his effort to say, this is what you do when you want to know God. Look what I do. See how I'm doing it. And I I think that's what Jesus is saying. Don't do that. 
And it can be awkward for us. I think we go out to restaurants and we want to thank the Lord for our food or we might be in public someplace, even even in, in worship here, where we know there are other people around us and we might be conscious of what they're looking at. And, and what Jesus is saying is, that's not why you do it. And I know we know that, but I want us to be aware of it. I want us to, to be aware that Jesus is concerned enough about it to say, there's a danger in praying to be seen praying. That's not what prayer is for. And when you pray for something to be seen praying, being seen is your reward. What you've asked for is no longer on the table. It's just you've got all you're going to get, and that's the applause of those who are marveling at you. Perhaps you watch sporting events and you see people score a touchdown, kneel down in the end zone. That's their reward. And I have mixed feelings about it. I'm glad when people want to demonstrate their faith and they want to be bold for Christ in public. But what Jesus is saying is don't do that because that's not what prayer is for. Prayer is not to be seen praying. So before he teaches us how to pray, he says how not to pray. Verse 7, and, has another instruction for us, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So empty phrases is not what Jesus is after. This is a problem for a couple of reasons. The first is that, like an actor, we might be inclined to be reciting a script. And I don't know about you. I, I can't speak for anybody but myself, but sometimes when I do something a, a, a few thousand times, it, it, it loses some of its significance for me. For example, when we sing the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it is labor for me to not just fall into zombie mode and I can put my mouth on autopilot when I'm singing these great words about God's glorious acts of saving grace and, and beautiful, bounteous provision. I have to work hard. Sometimes I will not sing a word and, and bring, come it back in. I have to work at it. And I don't know how you are, but sometimes the Lord's Prayer just goes, and I'm not even sure I prayed it. Did we get to that? So what he's saying is don't make it like a script. And that's hard to do when we're all saying the same things together, isn't it? It's hard. And I think he wants us to be conscious of the fact. Take note. It is possible to make it a script. And he says he doesn't want you to do that. Don't heap up your empty words for that reason. And there's a second kind of empty praising that's kind of like, Babbling. I think the Greek word is like, it, it refers to just blah, 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 blah. But what, what he's saying there is don't try to put your words together in such a way as you're going to make God do what you tell him to. It's not a spell. It's not manipulation. It's not, if I say this just right, and if I add the words in Jesus' name, and I say, if it be your will, you're not putting together a persuasive speech that's somehow going to convince God to close the deal. Those are another kind of empty words. And he says, beware. And remember, and I think we had this pointed out, Jack Jack was so great. He's like, here's what God says, and do I do that? And yes, I do. And, and when God says don't, you have to realize you probably do. Or you might be inclined to. Or it's a danger for you. So be aware of that possibility. Be aware of trying to put your words together in just such a way as you're trying to come up with a, an incantation. That if I say it just right, now God has to do it. That's not how we're to pray. So before Jesus ever invites us to to follow an example, he says, beware, watch out, don't do this. And we get that. We get that, don't we? Um, In in the end of verse 8, it says, "Don't, don't be like those empty babbling hypocrites. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Which is a whole other sermon. Why pray if he knows what we need and and he's good and he's all-powerful? So why even pray? There's more to be said, but I want you to know that God is interested in a relationship with his children. 
just like you're interested in a relationship with your children. Now, you don't starve them so they come and cling to your leg going, feed me, oh, this is so great, I love the relationship. You're not depriving your children to to make them come to you. But part of your relationship with your children is what you're able to do for them and what they do with you is to be together. He wants to be with you. He loves you. He made you. He called you. He saved you. He wants to talk with you. And he wants you to talk to him, to pour out your heart to him, like a relationship almost, wouldn't you say? So we want to trust in God's goodness and his care to know what we need, even as we're asking. Then he gets to verse 9. Pray then like this. So now that he's told us a good bit about what not to do, he says pray this way. Um, We might call this the disciples' prayer. It's not a prayer that Jesus essentially would pray because he wouldn't be saying, forgive me. But we can call it the disciples' prayer, and for, for shorthand we call it the Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that the Lord taught us, as we say every week. In order to pray in a way that's not a false formality, but in a way that's pleasing to God and in conformity to his desire for us, we need to know who God is and who you are in him. So you might not think of this passage of Scripture to be a systematic theology of who God is, but I want to show you that it is exactly that, and it also tells us who you are in him by the way Jesus has given us to address him. Here's this model prayer, how we're to pray. And in fact, it's not intended to be used as a script, but it's a great way to orient yourself towards how we can pray. So let's look and see who God is and who we are in this prayer. First of all, our Father. What does that say about us? Well, it says we're children. And we're children together because it isn't my Father. It's our Father. We're coming to him in a collective way as our benevolent Father who has brought us together, called us together, adopted us to his own, and treats us with the most intimate of human relationships. There is a name that, that God has given us um, in Scripture, the, the name Yahweh, the, the tetragrammaton, those four letters that he gives to Moses as a, as a personal name. But that's, there's no one like Yahweh. He is in a class by himself. He's, it's not even a class. It's just a completely other. All right, That's part of what we mean when he's transcendent. He's completely other. And when Jesus says to pray, he doesn't want us to talk to God as completely other. He wants us to talk to God as very like in a relationship, an organic relationship, like unto the most intimate of human relationships, a father to their parent. Our father. He says, addressing him as father, that we are his children together with other children. First John 3 says, See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He loves us, and he calls us his children. He also tells us in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So think of what a child is like, especially a child before an almighty God. Weak, defenseless, vulnerable, humble, and at the same time, cherished, valued, beloved, precious. So come boldly to prayer. He's our father. Come like a child. We are his children. He is our father. 
The next verse says, or the next phrase says, in heaven. So we're children and we are far from home. We approach him in awe. He is in heaven and we are not. And he knows that and it's okay with him. He is in heaven and he is in perfect blessedness. He's not suffering political unrest. He's not suffering a financial crisis. He's not suffering a high crime rate. He's not suffering from disease or decay or death. He possesses all riches. He dwells in unapproachable light. Our troubles do not harm him. He is in heaven. And one day all those in Christ will be with the Lord. He wants to be with us. He says in John 14, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He also dwells with us. It says in Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the lowly and the contrite of heart. So he does dwell in heaven, but he also dwells with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We are children and we are far from home. Hallowed be your name. We are children and now we are worshipers. As we approach God in prayer, we are to approach him in worship. His very name is holy. His entire nature and identity and everything about him is holy, set apart from his creation, perfect in righteousness. We come rightly to praise him and thank him and adore him. I I love our worship here at, at church. It just draws me to him to recognize his holiness. His name is hallowed among us at UPC. He is holy. He is glorious. He is beautiful. And we are his worshipers. Your kingdom come. We're children. We're worshipers. And now we see we are subjects of a king. We're actually a a step down in this. Do you see there's a bit of a descending ladder in the descriptions that we take out of this prayer? Children... Worshippers, even the angels worship, but they're not called sons. To which of his angels did he ever say, today you are my son? So angels worship, but we are children. Worship, now subjects, a step down from, from worship. To be a subject is to be under his control, but also under his protection. He is to be thought of as a mighty king, a sufficient Wonderful king that we, we, we sang this morning in, in, you know, he is, God is the lion and he's, he's, he's powerful and who can stop him? No one can stop the Lord Almighty. He's a powerful king, but he's also a king that is to be served and obeyed. So we come in prayer as a subject of the king of kings. He's not the king of a political kingdom. His kingdom is wherever he is. In John 18:36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And in John, and Luke 17, he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So we are born into this kingdom here, and he is the king over it. And we are to serve him as his subjects. And now we say, your will be done. We move from subjects to now servants, like, like, a, like a waiter. Like, what is your, my, your wish is my command. Your, your will be done. What, what do you wish? We move from subjects to servants. And this is not a lowly role. This is an honored role, an honored servant. But in the New Testament, the word that we typically translate servant is also translated slave. We would belong to him to serve him. And we are to do whatever he commands.
our role when we come into him, when we come to him to say, your will be done, that's not if I feel like it or if I agree with you or if it's convenient for me. That's part of why I'm preaching here. No, Lord, your will be done. You want me to come up today? I will go. Yes, Lord. The, Lord, the answer is yes. What is the question? In, in Psalm 40, verse 8, though, this is not a subservient servant. This is, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is in my heart. So if you know his word and you know that he's for us, you will know his will and you will pray and act accordingly. Now, on earth as it is in heaven, we're under his care. He has control of what happens here and now and forever over all things material, over all things spiritual, over all things visible, over all things invisible, over all things temporary, over all things eternal, over all things fallen and all things perfected. As in heaven, we're saying, may it be so here on earth. May we be as willing and obedient and swift as the angels who do your bidding. Then we come and we say, give us this day our daily bread. Who is someone who asked for bread but a beggar? We are beggars before him, not just subjects. Beggars. We're needy. We don't have all that we need. He's the giver, and we are needy every single day. That's why he says, give us today our bread of needfulness for today. We have need of the simplest things and the most basic things, and he, can, he provides all of this. Contrast this with the prayer that was prayed by the character played by Jimmy Stewart in the movie Shenandoah. Maybe some of you saw it, 1965, classic movie, wonderful movie, but not a great prayer. Listen to Jimmy Stewart. I'll try not to do a Jimmy Stewart impression. He, he prays over a, a meal. Everybody's gathered around the meal. He lowers his head, he folds his hands, and he says, Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked it the harvest, wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Amen. That is not a beggar. That is a boastful man. And the movie goes on to show the folly of that prayer, for he cannot do what he seeks to do without the Lord's guidance and providence. The beggar is lower than the servant without resource and without protection, without provision. So we come hoping that he would be generous and kind, believing that as he's promised, he will. Give us means, when we say, folks, when we say give us today our daily bread, he might be giving someone else's bread to you that you might be his instrument to give it to them. So when you are as generous as you are, you're helping him give to someone else who he's providing for. Be mindful of that. He's not just giving you your bread. He might be giving you someone else's bread too so that you could share it with them. Be mindful of that. Come, you sinner, poor and needy. Give, Lord, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And then we say, not just beggars, we say, forgive us our debts. We're debtors, and this classically means sinners. The Scots Presbyterians prefer to talk about it in terms of a monetary obligation. We Scots were very frugal. Aye. But when it says debtors, it's not talking about, you know, pay off my mortgage, God. He's saying... Jesus is saying, you owe a debt of sin to God. You're a sinner. 
and we know it. We know we're full of unrighteousness. It's a prayer for restoration of personal fellowship, which we have broken. So giving bread is for the body, but giving forgiveness is for the soul. The sinner sits lower than the beggar. The beggar cries, give. The sinner cries, forgive. Because we've offended our God and Father. Asking forgiveness is an act of worship. Remember, what you ask for implies that the person who you're asking can actually give it. So you don't go to another human being and say, forgive my sin against God. So when Jesus forgives sins in the New Testament, he's saying, I'm God. Because only God can forgive sins. But come secure in the knowledge that in Christ and in him alone you are forgiven. You hear it every week from the pulpit. I'm so glad for the assurance of pardon. It's like a a breath of fresh air, a a shot of oxygen in in a week that's been tough. And you come here and you're just reminded that he forgives. He's good. Secure. Come secure. You are forgiven. And then we pray as we've also forgiven our debtors. Now we acknowledge we're not just sinners, we're victims. And as as Christians, I think it's easy for us to say, yes, we're sinners. We, we, we practice that. But it's harder to say, I've been sinned against. Uh, someone else has a debt against me. I mean, that, I, I, they owe me. They, they've hurt me. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was ten minutes ago. But I've been sinned against. And he's saying, I know. He's also tying our relationship to him to our relationship to those around us. So when he says, when he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, he's putting the two together. Forgiving others is meant to look like the way that God forgives us. And that includes, folks, if I could just offer you an opportunity to change the way you view forgiveness God does not continue to bring up your sins to you over and over again. So if you're holding a grudge, maybe you need to have a grudge sale. Everything must go. Because the price has been paid. Forgive like you want to be forgiven. And not have God say, remember that time? And I'm still mad at you about. And yeah, but you're the one who? That's not forgiveness. That's just delayed retribution. Then we say, lead us not into temptation. We're not just sinners and victims. We are actually in danger as sinners of being greater sinners still. We're tempted. We're weak. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. James 1.13 says, God doesn't tempt anyone to evil, but, but Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would work in our hearts so the things that do tempt us will not lead us into sin. We're all tempted frequently, more frequently the more you use your phone, amen? But just because you want to doesn't mean you have to. That might be good to cross-stitch that and stick it on your fridge. Just because you want to doesn't mean you have to. Father, help us not to fall. And we say, but deliver us from evil. We're not only in danger of sinning worse, we're actually beset by a very powerful present enemy. Deliver us from that enemy that's still here, prowling about like a roaring lion. He's bound, but he's very good at what he does. Cursed be his name. His eternal destiny is secure, but he's still on the loose. 
So deliver us from that. We're under threat of that evil one. We are a target. Lord, rescue us, protect us, be a shield. We know we need help. We acknowledge it. We're in danger. So having been forgiven and freed from guilt and pain, we're still in a battle. And we pray that he would help us through it. So come to that one who alone can deliver from sin and temptation. And then when we say amen, so be it, this is the way. I want to, I want to read you what the, the Heidelberg Catechism says about the word amen. Good old count on the Heidelberg Catechism to make words mean what they really mean. It says this, amen means this is sure to be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayers than that I really desire what I pray for. Isn't that powerful? You say amen, you say, God, I know you heard it even though I don't really remember what I said. So come knowing he's going to provide everything and more. He knows what you need. Your debt has been paid. He wants you to come to him. He wants you in relationship with him. He loves you. He wants you to be with him. He loves you. He loves the sound of your voice, singing or speaking or silent. He loves you. Come to him. Pray to him. Bow before him. Child of God. And as we've just walked through this whole prayer of child, beloved of the Father, and so desired, so brought into his presence, far from home, worshiper, subject. As you see all this descent, remember the one who descended from his heavenly throne to come to your rescue. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And as he rose from the dead, he promises he will raise us from the dead. And as he went to the Father, he will take us to be with him. This descent is not bad news. This is just the first step. And the end is going to be more glorious than I can tell. If he is your God, everything you have belongs to him. If everything you have is his, you can even give him the debts you hold against others. And you can let them resolve, let him resolve them in his way. You just forgive. So when you pray, pray like a child of the most loving Heavenly Father. Pray like a worshiper of the great and glorious God. Pray like a subject of the benevolent, powerful King of Kings. Like a servant of the master of the universe like a beggar toward the infinitely rich giver of every good and perfect gift, like a sinner led to repentance by the kindness of God, like a victim of the sin of others ready to forgive as you have been forgiven, like a sinner still tempted and still in danger of further sin to the one who can keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. Pray confidently. Pray celebrating your forgiveness. Pray happy to forgive others, ready to relieve yourself of the burden of carrying someone else's sin. Pray believing that you have what you ask. Pray expecting to be changed. Pray because you know him and he's your father. And you love him. And best of all, because you know that a father loves his children. So let's pray now. Father, it's not about the many words. Write these truths on our heart. Make it real for us in a way that transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Help us to live like the beloved children that you've said that we are. 
until that day when we see you face to face and hold you in that everlasting embrace. Amen.